0: Well, if you're uh, new or visiting uh, this morning, uh, we've been in a sermon series called Full Throttle, and it's been about how the ancient church that we see in the book of Acts went after the gospel and the spread of the gospel and sharing the story of the resurrected Christ with just abandonment. I mean, they threw their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength into it and went full throttle at sharing the gospel. And so that's what we've been talking about, And, and today we're in the 20th chapter of Acts as we wind up the series. If you want to turn to that and get ready to follow along here in a minute. Speaking of throttles, <clears throat> uh, on a car, we don't usually call it the throttle, but the accelerator pedal is what gives us extra speed, and so that really is the throttle pedal of the car. What you may not realize is that years ago, uh, uh, on cars, on the dash, there was a knob with a big T on the knob, and you would pull it out, and what it would do, it was kind of lock in where your uh, accelerator pedal was down, so if you needed to wiggle your foot or, or give it a break or something, you just hold that knob out, and it kept your uh, throttle, your accelerator, where it needed to be. It was kind of a precursor, I think, to cruise control uh, in that sense, but that was actually called a throttle. On an airplane, a throttle is is sort of like a T-handle that sits about on the dash area uh, where your uh, gear shift would be. Now, depending on how many engines are on the aircraft, you may have one, you may have four throttles, uh, but you push the throttle forward to increase thrust, you pull it back to decrease thrust. Uh, On a motorcycle, your throttle is the grip handle over here, and you twist it on the right-hand side, and that gives you your throttle. On tractors, uh, at least the older tractors, the throttle was on the steering column, and you pulled it down, uh, to increase the throttle. On a human being, do you know what the throttle is? <laughs> it's your throat. The, the etymology of the word throttle comes from the word throat. When we use it in the verb form, we talk about throttling something, or throttling someone, which means to silence or to choke. And what the… Uh, yeah, what do you mean? I get it, all right. What… What the church was facing in the first century was the opposition who wanted to throttle the message of Jesus Christ. They would have choked Paul and anybody else that spoke out about it if they could, but Paul could not be silenced. The early church could not be silenced. It was a grand time. Paul went full throttle when it came to proclaiming the message of the resurrected Christ. Now, when one considers how arduous and dangerous it was to travel 2,000 years ago, it is amazing to me that the Apostle Paul was able to accomplish so much in such a short time. He, he traveled three major missionary journeys, not counting the fourth journey, which took him all the way to the city of Rome and imprisonment there. And that was over a time period of about 12 to 13 years. we got a map that we're going to show you here that gives you a, a feel for where all he traveled during this time. And, and when he would go on these journeys, sometimes he would spend a few days with the people, sometimes a few weeks. In the case of the city of Ephesus, he was there three years teaching and establishing the church. Paul visited at least 16 different cities that we know of and committed himself to establishing the church in all of those places and more. It was an amazing life. It was an amazing venture. But near the end of the third mission journey, the winds of change are blowing, and Paul senses the Spirit of God leading him back to Jerusalem. And since he does not expect to ever come through this way again, chapter 20 is often viewed as his farewell to the churches that were so near and dear to his heart. Now, he desperately wants to get home in time to celebrate the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, which is also the birth of the church, but he doesn't want to go until he has had the opportunity to meet with all of the churches and encourage them to stay strong, to finish strong to keep preaching the gospel of Christ. Now we pick up the story uh, uh, in chapter 20 when he is at Troas. Now if you remember, this has got to be a bit nostalgic for the Apostle Paul. It was in Troas where he had this vision of the man in Macedonia who said, come over here and help us. That's when Paul's plans changed. He took the gospel to Europe for the very first time, not seven years ago. So he's back in Troas and, and here is a vibrant church Um, And now keep in mind, too, when we're reading through this story, that there was no such thing as weekends back then. Sunday was the first day, well, Sunday still is the first day of the week, but back then uh, it was not a day off, it was the first day of the work week, and so the church would have to meet in the evening, not during the day, when people uh, were finished with their work. So here's how the good Dr. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, picks up the story in Acts 20, verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now let me let me pause there and explain this. To break bread is an expression that describes communion. And Paul's, or, or Luke writes here that they had come together for the distinct purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is one of the key passages that we have in the book of Acts that reminds us what the practice of the first century church was, that they met regularly, probably weekly, on the first day of the week, Sunday, to observe the Lord's Supper. It was central. It was a focal point of their worship, and that's why we do it weekly today, and why it should always be a focal point of our time uh, together. Then it goes on, it says, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. <laughs> there were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Now, I love the way Luke sets up what's about to happen. Do You realize in an upper room, it's full of people. Everybody's crowded in to hear what, uh, what uh, Paul is going to say. It's hot in the room, and there's lots of lamps. Lamps are sucking the oxygen out of the air. They're putting off fumes, and they're adding more heat. Okay, you got the, you got the picture here? Verse 9, seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. (laughs) When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Bless his heart, Eutychus was trying. I mean, he even moved to the window. Maybe a little fresh air would help revive him. He just couldn't stay with it. Now, Paul hurries down. By the way, Eutychus, his name means fortunate. Fortunate, all right? Verse 10, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. This is very reminiscent of what the prophet Elijah did in 1 Kings when the widow's son where he was staying died and and Elijah put himself on... On the boy, hand to hand, foot to foot, head to head, and prayed three times, and the boy's life was restored. We see Paul doing much the same thing. And Eutychus is raised from the dead. And Paul says, Don't be alarmed, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. I'm impressed with the fact that Eutychus stayed for the second half of the sermon, aren't you? I mean, that, that's pretty good. Uh, indeed, he was fortunate. Now, this has always been one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. And you probably think, well, yeah, there's a resurrection. That didn't happen every day. Paul raises this young man from the dead. No wonder it's your favorite in the, in the book of Acts. Well, that, uh, I agree, it is an impressive miracle. But that's not my favorite part of the story. My favorite part of the story is the fact that Paul had people sleep on him when he preached too. And that <laughs> is great encouragement. As a matter of fact, I am sure God put this passage in the book of Acts to encourage 2,000 years of preachers and teachers in the kingdom of God, because for 2,000 years, people have been sleeping in church. Statistically speaking, statistically speaking, if all the people who slept in church were laid end to end, they would sleep more comfortably. Now, from where I stand, I can see it start. (laughs) This is a pretty good vantage point. I'm watching, you know, I I can see it start. First of all, the eyes begin to blink a lot more than they normally do, and you can tell they're fighting it. And then the eyebrows go up, as if that's going to help keep the eyelids open even more. (laughs) And then the head begins to, to, to bob like this, and, and finally they are out. Now, some people fight it through about 13, 14 rounds. Others go down with the first punch. I mean, they just are out. I, I've got to tell you, I have witnessed more whiplash in the pew than in automobile accidents. I've seen more sharp elbow jabs from frustrated wives any, than anywhere else. I've heard unfiltered snoring right during the middle of worship. But people who fall asleep in a church service don't bother me nearly so much as those who just fall asleep spiritually. When something happens in the life of your neighbor, are you the first to comfort and help meet the need or are you spiritually asleep at the end of the cul-de-sac? When a coworker is struggling with issues at work or issues at home, can can he count on you to have a listening ear, or will he find you spiritually asleep in your cubicle? When a friend asks you about your belief in God, can she expect a thoughtful and sincere response, or will she find you asleep in your faith? You see, folks, I fear that one of these days we're going to have to stand before God and answer for all of the opportunities we missed to make a difference because we were spiritually sleeping. So snore if you must hear. I can handle that. But you be wide awake out there because eternity is too long and the consequences are too grave for us to be asleep when opportunities come to share with somebody else the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul leaves Troas and makes his way to the community of Miletus and because he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, he doesn't want to make a journey all the way to Ephesus. So he calls for the elders of Ephesus to meet him there. Now when I think of the Apostle Paul, I don't, know, I don't know how you picture him, but I always picture Paul as kind of an aggressive, intense kind of guy. I've got places to go, things to do, people to meet. Come on, let's get going. I think he's a very type A kind of personality. He's an on-target kind of guy. I've got a goal, and I will meet that goal. Now that's sort of how I visualize Paul, but I'm really not sure that's a fair visualization. He did get a lot done in a short period of time. But that wasn't the key to his success. The key to his great success in the kingdom of God was his relational skills. Paul encountered hundreds of people during these 13 years of traveling and preaching and establishing congregations throughout the entire Mediterranean region. But in the midst of all this planning and traveling and teaching and preaching, he never lost track of the important relationships. He writes to the, to the Philippian church in the opening verses of the book of Philippians, I thank God every time I remember you. He says much the same thing to the Colossian Christians and the Thessalonian Christians. He calls Timothy, you are my true son in the faith. Those are deep relational themes that he writes. Paul focused on the person, not on the mission. And his parting message to the Ephesian elders is no different. This is a tender, moving scene filled with compassion and the desire to strengthen those around them that all of them would finish strong. He begins his discourse with the elders by reminding them of his personal motives. He said, what I've done, I've not done for money. I've not done it for fame. I've done it for the health of the churches. Everything I've done, I've done to make the church strong and healthy. And secondly, Paul speaks of following God's lead. Somewhere along the way, the Spirit of God had revealed to the apostle Paul that he was headed to prison and headed for much hardship. Now, Paul didn't know where that was going to happen or when it was going to happen. He just knew it was coming. But nevertheless, he said, wherever God leads, I'm going to follow Look what he said, wrote in verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Don't you love that spirit? Whatever God has for me to do, whatever God has for me to endure, I just want to complete the task. I just want to finish strong is what Paul says. In the third part of his discourse, he reminds them that he won't ever see them again this side of heaven. And then he encourages them to finish strong as well. He says to the elders, he says, you protect yourselves, and then you protect the flock. Hey, don't lose track of that, folks. That's a great model for your own life, all right? First of all, you be spiritually healthy, then you can help somebody else be spiritually healthy. You protect your own soul, then you can help protect somebody else's soul. It's a great tool. In the fourth part, he shares this warning. In verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Why, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I had never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul says, don't ever let down your guard. Bad things are coming. Bad people are coming. Don't get sucked in to the untruths. In the last part of his speech, he commits their well being to God. And then it's this closing scene that just so grips my mind. In verse 36, when he had said this, he knelt down with them, all of them, and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. I have this visual image in my mind of the elders of Ephesus standing on the shore there at Miletus watching with tears coursing down their face until Paul's ship is a speck that disappears on the horizon. Not because he was a great preacher. Not because he was such a fantastic missionary. But because he was their dearest friend. For Paul, it was all about the relationships. Several of our families here have had tender moments this weekend. We've had a a wonderful group of graduates this year, but it's been a tender weekend with this particular shifting in your lives. And uh, well, graduates, would would you just let me talk to you for a minute? First of all, let me say congratulations to all of you who are graduates here this morning and to your families. We are so incredibly proud of you. You've done a great job, and I have every confidence that you will continue to do a great job as you go out. Wherever God takes you, whatever God does in your life, you will do well if you will love Him and love others. Uh, It it doesn't seem possible to me, but 40 years ago, right now, 40 years ago, I, too, was a brand-new high school graduate with all kinds of dreams and goals. And I can tell you this, it has been a wonderful journey But let me tell you, of all the things that you will face and experience, of the many ups and downs of the years ahead, I can honestly say that your faith in God and the relationships that you build will rise to the top as the most important in life. Careers come and go. Sometimes you have a savings account, sometimes you don't have a savings account. Unexpected heartaches will show up on your front porch without warning. You will make mistakes with your words and with your actions. There'll be things that you'll say that you wish you could take back. There'll be things that you could, you, you'll do that you wish you could turn back the clock and do them again because all of us are broken, fallible human beings. But through everything that happens, the good and the bad, only the Lord and a genuine relationship with others will get you through. I can promise you this, your greatest joy your greatest significance, your greatest contribution to humanity in general will be found in loving God and loving others and bringing the two together. If you want to finish strong, that's the way you finish strong. Love God, love others, bring the two together, be relational. Now, out of these tender moments that Paul shared in his farewell, what what can all of us this morning learn about life? Well, here's a couple things just to keep in mind. First of all, be humble. Be humble. Paul's words ring with humility. He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's not false humility. You know, some people, you can tell when it's false humility. Oh, no, I, I, I don't deserve that. I don't, that's a false. Paul genuinely is saying here, I am nothing compared to what God's purpose is in my life. Now, I don't know about you but I constantly battle that. I have to remind myself over and over. It's a daily battle. It's not about me. It is about God's purpose in me. It's not about my life. It's about God's life in me. All of these things we are battling. Humility is a tough thing to get. Proverbs eleven two 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility, with humility comes wisdom. When Jesus was teaching, the disciples posed a question to them, and they said, Lord, who who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And there must have been children in the crowd that day because Jesus had one of the little kids come up and stand with him. I've got this picture. Jesus standing there, the little kid standing right next to him, and Jesus got his arm around him. And Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 4. He said, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever thought about that statement? Well, what is it about children? We can learn so much from children. Their relationships are amazing. They are blind to such things as skin color, beauty, or social standing. They make friends quickly. You give them an hour together with a new kid, and they'll have a new best friend. They forgive easily and quickly. The hurt is soon forgotten, and they're on their way smiling as if nothing happened. They trust implicitly. They hold hands tightly. They love genuinely. When I am down and discouraged, when I've got one of those bad days and my world just seems flat, my world suddenly takes a major turn. When my granddaughter Addie grips my neck and whispers in my ear, I love you. And suddenly the world is right again. What if, what if we adults learn what the kids already know. Why is it that we forget how we start? We need to relearn to be the same way, to be blind to skin color, beauty, or social standing. We need to learn how to make friends quickly, forgive easily, trust implicitly, hold on to one another tightly, and love genuinely. And suddenly when we do that, the world will be right again. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if we live that way, others in the world who do not know Jesus Christ would see Him in us and say, what is this that you have? And we'd say, it's not what, it's who. And it would open the door for them to find Christ. What's the difference between adults and kids? I'll tell you. Innocent humility. The humble are the greatest in the kingdom. They just don't know they're the greatest because they're humble. That's finishing strong. Stay alert. Paul doesn't just say to be humble. He tells us to stay alert. He warned the church that there were tough times and scary ideas coming, so stay alert. It's so easy to get lulled into thinking everything's okay. You know, the ancient country of Israel after the kingdom divided you had the southern kingdom of Judah and then you had the northern kingdom of Israel man were they prosperous were things going great in the land of Israel they had freedom they had wealth you name it everything was going good except for the prophets the prophets kept saying you're abandoning your faith Get back to your devotion to God. If you don't turn this around, calamity and destruction is going to come upon you, and it will destroy you. But all the signs were good. They were prosperous. God surely had to be pleased. They were prosperous. They were free. They enjoyed all kinds of things. And then a little more than 700 years before the birth of Christ, the Assyrian army comes in and utterly, so utterly destroys the nation of Israel that they never came back. I want you to be warned. Just because everything is good doesn't mean that everything is right where it should be. Be alert. Know God's Word because it's the only way to recognize false ideas and spiritual deception. Know the Bible. G.K. Chesterton warned, when people cease believing in God, it's not that they will believe in nothing, it's that they'll believe anything. Don't believe anything. Know God's truth for that truth will set you free. If you stay alert, if you stay alert, if you're on your guard, you'll finish strong. And then keep praying. I moved every time I read the end of the story. They knelt down and prayed together. Sure, there were tears, but their faith was stronger, this faith that drew them together and made them eternal friends. I'm convinced that the church family that prays together finishes strong. Well, Luke is a master recorder of history, and uh, I like the way Luke doesn't end the book of Acts. It just, kind of, it just kind of stops. There's really no ending to the book of Acts. It's sort of like the season finale of your favorite TV show in the spring, and it ends and it leaves everything kind of hanging, but you know because it does that, you've got hope that the series is coming back in the fall. And that's kind of how Luke Lynn ends the book of Acts. It just ends with a, with a cliffhanger. And you say, well, well what happened next? Where what happened next. The church has continued to write the end of the book of Acts and will write it until the very end of time. God calls us to live full throttle, each one reach one, to finish strong. And what we do here, we may never see the results of or the fruit or the harvest of. But that doesn't keep us from being faithful. Back in 1812, American missionary Adoniram Judson went to Burma with the message of the gospel to to share with the Burmese people um, the hope of the resurrected Christ. Uh, Judson faced all kinds of struggles. He was imprisoned, tortured, kept in shackles. And uh, then, the worst of all, his wife died. Uh, Judson went into a a depression and um, uh, really wanted to leave but he did not give up what God had called him to do, threw himself into the work of translating the Bible out of English into the Burmese language. And so by 1834, having finished the New Testament first, he finished the last of the Old Testament, and the Burmese people now had the Bible in their own language. He lived there for 38 years, died in 1850, and is buried there. And when he died, There were only about 25 professing Christians in the country. Now, fast forward to the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language. Paul Borthwick was addressing a group that was celebrating Judson's work, and he had a Burmese translator by the name of Matthew, and he asked Matthew, he said, Do you know anything about Adoniram Judson? And Matthew began to cry. And then Matthew said, I know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us. He died a pauper, but he left the Bible for us. When he died, there were just a few believers. But today, today there are over 600,000 of us, and every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Adoniram Judson. Here's the thing. Judson never saw any of that. He just labored faithfully, planted the seed, watered the seed finished strong, and God gave the harvest. Do you realize that every one of us in this room can trace our spiritual heritage back to the Apostle Paul, who obeyed God's lead and took the gospel to Europe? I don't know what the future holds, but I can tell you this. What you do today, God will not waste. You stay firm in your faith. You go at it full throttle. And let us all together finish strong.